Hi, everyone. You're listening to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and I'm really excited about today's episode because we've spoken a lot about interior design on the Style Files up to this point, but today we're turning over to architecture. And as you know, architecture is something that I am very passionate about, something that I love and appreciate very much being an interior designer. And I also believe that it's the architecture, truly the bones of the house, that determines the overall spirit, the character, uh, the sense of place, and dictates a lot of what the interiors should be. So I'm thrilled to bring you today's guest, Thomas A. Kligerman of the renowned firm Ike Kligerman Barkley. Thomas A. Kligerman grew up on the East Coast, but spent his high school years living in New Mexico. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Columbia University and his Master of Architecture from Yale School of Architecture. Before co-founding Ike Kligerman Barkley, Tom worked for Robert A.M. Stern Architects in New York City. He loves to travel and has lived abroad in England and France. In 2017, he spent six weeks in Italy as a visiting scholar at the American Academy in Rome. Tom serves on the board of several charitable and educational institutions, including the Sir John Soane's Museum Foundation. Tom lectures frequently across the country on many topics, including the cultural and architectural history of Cuba, the influence of the shingle style in American design, as well as the intersection of modern and traditional architecture. I hope that you'll enjoy today's conversation. It's a really, really good one. You're gonna learn a lot about both Tom, his fascinating, journey, all of the various places that he's lived, and um, you'll find that he's not only incredibly smart, but really fun to chat with. Tom, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So where are you currently sheltering in place? I am in a rental apartment in Manhattan because my wife and I are renovating our real apartment. And uh, because of the virus, we're, um, we're locked out. The construction stopped and we're, we're holed up nearby. Oh, wow. So how has that been? Um, it's fine. It, you know, I hate to say this. It kind of makes me wonder why we're building in a, uh, spending all this money in an apartment because we can be perfectly happy in a very simple re- uh, rental. Isn't that funny? I feel like everybody is sort of taking real stock of what they truly need and want out of their homes in this time. I, I agree. It's funny. I I realize, you know, I spend so much, I mean, I spend most of my life thinking about new houses and design and interiors and finishes. And I realize I come home to this, this is literally a white box. <laughs> um, and, you know, white walls, not a very nice oak floor and I'm perfectly happy. And I sort of think it's almost like a palate cleanser to all the stuff I do all day long. Because I remember um, in the 1980s, Architectural Digest published Ralph Lauren's apartment on Fifth Avenue overlooking Central Park. And it was all white. And yeah, I think people were surprised by that. And I think one of the things I remember him saying in the article was, you know, I, I look at fabrics, I look at materials, I look clothes, I look at buttons, I look at zippers all day long, and I want to come home and just have a place where, you know, I can sort of, my eye can finally rest. And um, I understand that feeling now. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, that's funny that you mentioned that I, I feel the same way um, to some degree. My home isn't necessarily all white, but I do have white walls at home for the most part. Mm-hmm. Most of our home is white. And same reason we are lucky to have beautiful windows and tall ceilings. And so we get really nice daylight throughout the day or good um, sunlight. And I just wanted something that felt really fresh and crisp. And then our office is also almost completely white, save for, mm-hmm. you know, art and fabrics and pin boards and things like that. But because we work on so many different projects at any given time, and they're also different stylistically, I feel like if the office were so specific, it would sort of serve as visual noise for me. And I don't think that there's one right approach or not, but it's just interesting to hear how people are affected by color and pattern and their environment. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your office, our office is the same thing. We renovated our office about, I guess, six years ago. Now it's all white, even the floor, you know, we're in Manhattan. The floors are bright white um, epoxy which I was worried about because I thought we we're going to see every single footprint from every single delivery guy or whoever came to the office. But it's actually not true. It's so nice. It's white. It's clean. It's, it's, um, and then, if, you know, of course we're, it's filled with all kinds of stuff like wood samples and floor samples and plaster and drawings. But the background is really, is really, really nice. Just the, the simplicity of it. Sure. That's great. Well, Tom, did you always know that you were destined to be an architect? Um, I don't think I always knew it. I, you know, here's, here's what I did. Like I loved to draw. Um, I still have drawings of mine from 19. I didn't want to tell you from the early sixties, like the really early sixties. <laughs> and um, I love that. And we moved around all the time. My mother was fancied herself an interior designer and she actually was pretty good. But I think by the time I got out of, by the time I went to college, we had lived in 11 different houses, something like that. And, um, or certainly by the time I you know, moved out for good after graduate school, we'd lived in something like that. So we were constantly around new buildings and, you know, talking to contractors or doing some kind of renovation or painting. So in a way it was sort of in my blood. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I always thought I'd have to be a, a lawyer or a doctor. My, I thought my parents would just want me to do something like that. My father was a doctor. And I had this fear of growing up. I thought, I don't want to grow up because I don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I went away to school in France and I lived uh, as an exchange student. I lived with the French family and the son was studying architecture. I thought, wait a minute, people really do become architects. I become an architect. So really from sort of junior year of high school on, I decided that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, one last thing, when I was in seventh grade, I, I went to this very progressive school in Connecticut and we, you could design your own classes. And I designed a house design class for myself and I designed little buildings and I built wood models and stuff like that. So I guess it's been, it's been around for longer than I realize. Mm-hmm. That's so cool that you were able to tap into um, what you eventually would do as a profession at such a young age. It was great. And recently I found a drawing of a house I did. It was very modern and it had a, indoor swimming pool and a double height space and spiral staircases and stuff. I did it when I was in seventh grade and it's drawn on a piece of, uh, it's drawn on a piece of um, shirt cardboard, but somehow it survived all these years. Um, and it was, it was kind of a cool find. I bet. Well, you mentioned Connecticut and France. 
um, earlier, you grew up in Connecticut and New Mexico, and mm-hmm. then, of course, studied abroad. Mm-hmm. Each of these different locales has such a distinct vernacular and sort of essence and history. There's a real sense of place in each one of these locations. How did that influence your aesthetic? Um, you know, I, I think it kind of influ- influenced me a little bit by osmosis. Um, the thing that's interesting to me about both those locations is they are both um, places, New Mexico and New England, that have very distinctive, very American styles of architecture. You know, a lot of architecture in the United States is based on Euro- European precedents, whether it's Georgian or Italianate. But New England has colonial architecture, which is distinctly American. And it has, it's, it, was the pla- it was the birthplace of the shingle style, which is also a distinctly American style of architecture. So those things are, are, those are things I'm really interested in. And New Mexico has an indigenous style of architecture, the, the Pueblo architecture and the architecture of the, um, of the Puebloan people from you know, a thousand years ago um, in places like Chaco Canyon. So both New England and New Mexico have distinctly American styles. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently, and actually since the time I got out of graduate school, I remember thinking, you know, I really want to work on a distinctly American architecture. Both those places have that. And lately I've been thinking, you know, about how do you combine, how do you combine those two influences? How do you combine kind of massive Adobe buildings? The other thing is great about those with the great things about a shingle style house on the ocean in, you know, in Rhode Island or Connecticut. So uh, both of those things are playing into my thinking about designing houses now. That's so interesting. And I'm glad to hear you say that you wanted to focus on something that was distinctly American, because as I was preparing for our talk today, I was going through your book and going through your portfolio. And there's so many beautiful, iconic houses that you've done that I remember from when they were published. And the idea that came to mind was that, you know, the point of view was very distinctly American. And as you said, it wasn't necessarily as European influenced as a lot of the neoclassical architecture that we love um, tends to be. So I think there's something sort of refreshing and very distinctive and unique about that. Yeah. And that's not to say I don't love European architecture. I mean, I just spent Sure. So i weeks in Rome uh, a couple of years ago and, um, you know, someone came to me and wanted to design a, a Georgian house. We, we've done it, actually. I, you know, I'd leap at the chance. Um, but I do like, I, you know, I do like what we've created here on this continent. Right. Uh, and it's sort of endlessly fascinating and, and constantly inspirational. Absolutely. Well, thinking back to those formative years that you spent abroad, um, since we're talking about European architecture to some degree, you spent years, as you mentioned, in France, studying abroad, England and Italy Mm -hmm. as a student. Mm -hmm. What were you learning during these experiences and what do you carry with you to this day from that time? Um, Well, I mean, generally um, I was lucky that my, you know, I lived in England as a kid with my parents and, um, I was in high school in France. And so I was there at kind of formative ages. And so part of what I learned was just, you know, a love, a love of buildings and a love of cities and a love of architecture. I guess when I think about it, one of the things I I picicked up on that I try and bring into the work is just the the feeling of places. I mean, you don't literally have to necessarily copy uh, an Italian building or a French farmhouse, 
but there all these places have a, a feeling like you walk into a, I lived in Normandy in a, a, a 300 year old French farmhouse and I couldn't even stand up in it. I mean, literally I was taller than the living room ceiling. I could walk between the beams up and down the living room, but I couldn't walk across without ducking. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily a house I built for myself, but the feeling of being in that house with the timber and the leaded glass, um, all these kind of intangibles that people rarely talk about in architecture. What's the house smell like? You know, it smells like great old wood and and um, probably French cooking. So I think the thing I picked up on is how to how to create a feeling in a room as much as what the style of the room is. You know, the feeling of a Palladian villa is different from a feeling of, of um, some great stately home in the English countryside. And um, the sort of longer I do this, the more I think that stuff is important, the more I'd like to bring those those early lessons into what I'm doing now. Absolutely. That's so fascinating. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, you obviously have had a very successful architecture practice firm for quite a while. Um, could you tell us how your professional path was forged? Um, it started, I guess, you know, unbeknownst to me when I was an undergraduate, I went to Columbia and uh, my first design professor was Robert A.M. Stern. And he was also in my advisor because I was an architecture major. And so I met Bob Stern, um, my the beginning of my junior year, and unbeknownst to me, he would become my boss. So I yeah. he was my professor, and then I went away to graduate school in Connecticut, and I came back uh, in the middle of the rece- of a recession. No one was hiring except I ran across Bob Stern one night sitting in a cafe on Columbus Avenue in Manhattan, and he yelled out, "When are you going to come work for me?" And the, literally the next morning, I went, and that afternoon I was drawing. So. My career path um, really stems from when I was an undergraduate, uh, meeting meeting Bob Stern, working there for about seven years before I left with John Ike, who was also at Robert Stern's and had also been a student at Columbia. He was older than me. He was a graduate student. I met him briefly when I was an undergraduate, but it really goes back um, back to college. And what was it like working for someone who had been your professor and mentor. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I just had a conversation with Ray Booth about something very, very similar where um, he had he had started working with, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. His his professor, now boss, the iconic uh, uh, McAlpin, Bobby McAlpin. Bobby McAlpin, so, yeah. Yeah, so it, what was that like for you? Was it just a very seamless transition? Um, I would it wasn't exactly seamless. I mean, the, the first thing that struck me was that I didn't have to call him. He didn't want to be called Mr. Stern. I called him Mr. Stern the first day. and He goes, my name is Bob. And so that took a little getting used to to calling my this guy who was, you know, he was probably he was 40 or something like that. I was 20 something. He seemed much older at the time. Uh, it was a leap for me to have to be start calling him by his first name. And um you know, I, I was a very nervous uh, first-time employee. I, um, I mean, the, the bottom line is it was great. I learned a huge amount from Robert Stern. It's, it's, it's sort of the basis for our own practice, his way of thinking about history and, and bringing it into the modern world and stuff like that. It was great and incredible lessons. Moment to moment, um, it was kind of scary. You know, I, got, I was nervous. I was, the, I was the newest hire. It was during a recession. I was afraid that if they had to make... Uh, staff cuts, I'd be the first to go. And so the office, we were supposed to be in the office at eight. I was always there at sort of 7.30 and I would wait till Bob left before I would leave. So 
um, it was it was a little bit of a scary time until I felt a little bit more established and and needed, and I sort of you know made my place in the office. But so is it, it was at once a little scary and exciting, but also hugely rewarding and enormously. I learned a huge amount there. Of course. And at what point did you and John decide to strike out on your own? Um, we decided it was about about six years after being there, John had decided to leave. Um, and I wanted to go too. He said, why don't you, why don't you join us? Um, he was leaving with someone else in the firm. And um, I didn't I didn't want to leave quite then because I was concerned that I hadn't established enough sort of client connections, not that I was going to steal clients from Bob Stern. That would be kind of a political, uh, a professional suicide. But I wanted to make sure I had enough time to establish my, a little bit of a reputation um, so that when I left, I would have lots of connections. So I waited another year. Uh, so I was there seven years. John was there six years. Uh, he was there a little bit. Uh, he left earlier than I did. But I think there's a point when you just feel like you know, it's like growing up. It's, this is a point when you're ready to go. Um, Stern offered me partnership along with um, four other people in the firm. And I think that was really the catalyst. I thought if I sign this partnership thing, I'm here for good. And I really want to, I really want to make a name for myself. Um, Bob is very generous with credit and stuff like that, but it was, I thought it was still going to be uh, his office more than maybe I wanted it to be. And so that was really the catalyst, um, seeing John go, his offer, and then having to really make a decision. Do I want to be a partner here? Do I want to do something on my own? And those things kind of came together and I left in 1989. Wow. And you've obviously grown to become a very well-respected and established architect. You have offices on both coasts, right? Yep. yep. And how does that work? Is that a challenge? It's a little bit of a challenge. You know, we have an office, in, obviously Manhattan is our bigger, bigger office. And then we have one um, in the Bay Area. It, it was in San Francisco. Now it's in Oakland. Uh, we have a great space there and everybody who works for us lives in Oakland. Um, you know, one of the challenges is, and it's great because we have work on both coasts. You know, we really have spread our net in a way. And particularly that's a great area because of all the stuff that's going in the dot-com world. You know, um, one of the challenges to having two offices is keeping the culture the same. We, I think we have a very strong culture at office. We're always working on reinforcing that. And so I think the tough thing is, is just making sure both offices are in step. And they, I think they are. Um, even down to the design of both offices, that office is also white, paint, white painted floors, white painted ceiling, white everything. So visually they're connected and we have uh, weekly meetings together by Skype and Zoom and all those things. Um, so I say I think we're being successful at it. But that was sort of the surprise of having a second office is that there, you know, California does operate slightly different from New York City. So how do you sure. how do you keep California architects content um, and New York architects content? And, you know, what are the shared things that you have that keep it really one office? So those are those are the things we focus on. I like that you mentioned the issue of culture, of establishing culture within one's firm and in your case, having two separate offices, maintaining that same thread of the company culture throughout. Could you speak a little bit to that? Because, you know, we have a lot of people listening who are design professionals. Many are 
operating firms of their own. And I think that that's a really important thing to, to think about, you know, how do we create a company culture that is going to continue moving the firm forward and maintaining the values that we set? Well, you know, I guess in a lot of ways, and I don't think we're perfect at it, but here's some of the things we do. We, you know, the firm is, is, you know, as I mentioned before, from our experience at Stern's office and, and being a student under him, you know, everything we do is one way or another based in, in architectural history. Even if the, even if the building is actually very modern, we look to historical roots of, of modern buildings, maybe from the twenties. We just finished a house in Seattle that, that draws on influences from the Maison de Verre in Paris uh, by Chirot. So both firms do that. And we, and we have a library in both firms. And often when we buy a book for the New York office, we buy a second copy and it gets shipped out to California and vice versa. So the sort of, you know, we consider the library to be the, the library to be the heart of the office, and both firms have that. That's one thing. Um, I think um, we have periodically we have people from the California office come and spend a week working in our New York office, and vice versa. Someone will go out to California and spend a week working there, not necessarily on a project out there, although they may help, but even working from there on one of the ones back east in New York or someone from California comes and they're working on a project in San Francisco from New York office. So they, you people watch each other and how they learn or how they work. They get to know each other better. Everyone knows each other, but it always helps to be together. And then, you know, John and I go back and forth a lot. Um, and so we're in both of those office, all, offices all the time. And even as I mentioned, the physical things, you know, making the offices look the same. They're both white. Both have a kind of a sprinkling of antique furniture. Uh, those are some of the ways that come to mind right away. Um, plus, you know, our marketing stuff, we, for the most part, we have one website, even though we have two offices, we have one IKB Instagram. Uh, we have the person who does our marketing is, a, is actually based in California and he takes care of both offices. So a lot of the stuff that gets out to the public is funneled through one channel. Sure. But, it, you know, culture is a culture is a really interesting part of any office. And whether you like it or not, your office has culture. You know, every office has its own culture. And and I think just like thinking about design and architecture, you have to think about what it is and you have to foster it. And we do a lot of that. And we, you know, some of it is simple as, you know, I've heard it said that culture is a result of habit and repeated habits become culture. So you want to make sure you have good habits, whether it's work ethic or hours or um, how much you think about something or how much you, how you interpret things. So we actually, we more and more, we talk about those things because we are aware of, of fostering a, you know, one kind of a one firm um Absolutely. So how do you go about figuring out who is assigned to which project? Um, is it in one of your geographic well, locations? Well, certainly what's great about the California office is that, you know, basically from the Rocky Mountains West, um, you know, it's great to have a firm that's, that's only one hour, you know, at most one hour off uh, rather than three hours off. So sometimes, sometimes in terms of the office, it's mm -hmm. simply geographic. You know, um, the, the partner that runs a job, it depends. If, you have a, if a call comes in for John Ike, it's John Ike's project. Or for me, or if it's a repeat client, one of my clients wants another house, obviously I would do it. 
you know, the calls that we have to think about are the ones that come in. So we get a, you'll get a message on the phone and it says, Hey, we, we just bought this property. Can someone call us back? I want to talk to you. And then, then we think about a bunch of different things, you know, where is it, you know, if it's in East Hampton, who's has a project in East Hampton right now. So that it makes sense for, you know, uh, so we really sort of divvy up the work, the 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 anonymous, well, anonymous, but the calls who don't ask for a specific person, we really have to discuss. When it comes to the project architects, we're just starting a project in in Texas, and um, the call came for me, so it was me. But the, deciding on the project architect turned out to be relatively easy because this house is in a part of Dallas where one of our uh, principal architects grew up. And so it was a natural and, um, you know, she's now running that job. And um, it's interesting because she talks about this restaurant, that store, this high school, all the stuff that I don't know that links us sort of to the to the client a really nice way. So each project's different, but we take lots of different factors in consideration when we, we pick right. who does that what. That makes a lot of sense. Could you tell us a little bit about your design process? Where do you like to begin when you're at the onset of a new project with a client? Well, the first thing is, I mean, there's a lot of things you do. The first thing is just in, this is almost a cliche, but it's simply true. You want to be, the, the most important thing you need to be is a listener. You have to listen to what the client says. And so at, at, at the most basic level, you listen to what kind of house they want, what kind of style they want. And then you, and then you find out what the program is. Um, what's really important is, is walking onto the site. It's amazing how they send you a program, you discuss things, you know kind of what style, you know where it is, so you know that you want to be a good neighbor to the sort of the architectural traditions of a given area. So a lot of that stuff you begin to gather up as, as sort of a, a baseline for the project. But it's really walking onto the site and going, hold on, usually you can tell almost instantly, you know, how the house is going to lay out. Uh, so we go. To, we all we insist on seeing the, the site. Usually, best to do it with the owner, although sometimes that's not necessarily possible for scheduling reasons. And you walk onto the site, and you know, for example, that where the driveway is going to have to be. And if the driveway is there, you know where the garage is going to be. And once you locate the garage, that has that begins to locate the kitchen, and then there's a view that locates the major rooms. So the house almost begins to appear in front of you, and. I often think that what we do for a large part is, is what's that word? We're kind of um, aggregators. I'm not sure what the word is, but, you know, or um, I can't think of what it is, but we gather information. We just gather information and the house begins to develop itself almost um, early in, in the early stages. Sure. Um, and that, makes, that may sound oversimplified, but that's kind of what happens. And maybe that comes from years and years and years of doing it where you're able to come up with a party or an idea about a house lays out relatively quickly, mm -hmm. but it's all about information gathering and ch channeling is the word that, you know, sort of channeling all this information, you know, channeling the clients, what the client says, what the client doesn't say. You know, a lot of times what happens is they tell you they want this, but if you really listen, they really want something a little different from what they're saying. Cause they don't necessarily have the sort of architectural vocabulary to describe what it is. So kind of teasing those things out becomes part of the process. And then you put a pencil to paper and you show your clients your first ideas and it takes off right. from there. What do you think is critical for a successful collaboration between an architect and an interior designer? Um, 
communicate, you know, good communication. And, you know, one of the lessons of this COVID world is how great Zoom and all these things are. I mean, I think we're all kind of Zoomed out a little <laughs> bit. But um, it is amazing to pull up the screen and be able to talk and look at drawings together. So I think a lot of his communication, ideally, you sit down in a room together. But I think, you know, I think you want to have mutual respect. And I think you want to kind of agree on kind of a philosophy, philosophy for the building. We talk a lot about the philosophy, for example, of lighting. You know, what, what are our thoughts on, you know, down lights or not? I hate mm -hmm. down lights. But, you know, and then, you know, what is your palette philosophy and who's going to take the lead? Um, I think the thing we're really careful to do is, is back each other up. You know, we want to make it easy for the client. So we typically spend a lot of time. We spend much more time together working than we do with, with the client, actually. You know, making material selections, coming up with palettes, um, agreeing on things to say or what not to say that might derail certain things we've done before. Um, I think it, so it's, it's that and just being, you know, being a good team player, helping each other, supporting each other. It doesn't mean you roll over when you disagree. And some of the best stuff comes out of disagreements about an idea, whether it's with you or the client or uh, or the designer, or maybe a client has some kind of what you think is kind of a harebrained idea ends up being the best thing about a project. It's something you wouldn't thought about. I love working with, ex in, with interior designers because they make you do things you wouldn't do on your own. You know, you, you're not, you're no, you're not working in a vacuum when you're working with a, with a really good interior designer. I think it makes the project stronger. Sure, And I think you're right. You touched on it a little bit. I think it's important to remember that, you're working together as a team towards a common goal, which is, you know, creating a home that's making the client happy. So there's no need to sort of butt heads. I know sometimes it can be hard. We work with our fair share of architects and most of the time it's an amazing collaboration. And we, um, I enjoy the process so much because as you said, it, it the push and pull, like sort of seeing things through a different lens, I think, helps to make you better as a creative person and it's interesting to see an architect's perspective on something and to be able to collaborate and create something together i agree and here's the thing even you butt heads or whatever there my attitude about building a house or a building a library or a church or something is there's almost always a solution that doesn't it is not a compromise but keeps everybody happy and when i say everybody it's it's us the client the interior designer the builder there is a there is a solution that and you know you've sort of achieved the right solution when it satisfies everybody everybody may have to give up something but somehow the result is always better than it would have been if you just sort of gotten your way you know getting your way is kind of is sort of the wrong way to approach it and you know all one of the reasons our houses have such a wide range is because of who we work with for interiors. And I love looking at all that and seeing how they're different. Mm -hmm. Totally. What would you say is the most important element of a room? Um, I guess a little bit back to what I was saying about, you know, buildings in Europe, I guess it's, it's, it's walking into a room and having a sense of, 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 um, of there being there, there, that there is a, a character that is unique or appropriate. Um, you know, whatever it is, every room is different. If it's a living room, maybe it's some great fireplace that you gather around. 
and you still have views or if it's a library, it's really cozy. You know, the house we're doing right now has something that we call the speakeasy. It's a little hidden bar and you go in through a secret door and you arrive in this uh, circular room. It's all paneled in walnut or something like that. So it has, it, it, you, you have this really distinctive character. Um, I guess it's character. I guess, I guess whatever it is, whether it's a sitting, a little sitting area in a passageway or a living room or a library or the breakfast room or screen porch, you want a room to have character and you want to have a feeling you got there, that, you, that you've arrived someplace really great. And it evokes a feeling, the appropriate feeling. If it's a screen porch, it's sort of a, a light, airy feeling where you can, you know, you sort of, you have views, maybe you see the pool or maybe you see the ocean. Um, if it's a library, it's, you know, it's all about books and huddling down and reading and being comfortable. Maybe there's a fireplace. So I think it's, I think it's, it's a way of giving a room its own life and somehow making you feel that life when you get there. Sure. Well, conversely, are there any areas of a home's architecture that you feel are overlooked too often? Um, you know, I guess back of house stuff tends to often can be kind of not given the, the love that a dining room or living room gets. Um, we're working on a project right now where you come into the mudroom and um, there's a series of sort of, there's, a, there's like a dog wash room, there's a mudroom, there's a laundry room. And so they don't feel like you're like in the back of a house because these days everybody uses those spaces. You know, most houses, you don't necessarily have a staff back there. They're all connected by this amazing double height. Um, it's really a gallery with Scott with um, clear story windows above that bring light down. So even moving from room to room within these sort of service parts of the house, you're always in this almost almost like an eight. You're almost they all open onto kind of an atrium with natural light. So the whole experience is really pleasant and really beautiful. That you know I think a lot of times that back area of the house is where people want to save money or no one thinks about them as much, but they're for a modern family. You spend a lot of time in those and they should be nice. That's very true. I, I wonder if people will approach those spaces differently in a post COVID world. Maybe, you know, one of the things there's so much talk about this now, maybe, maybe, yeah. you know, if, if you certainly, if you're going to spend more time at home that you might've otherwise, because uh, you're spending a little less time commuting or less time in an office, that those areas, um, you're in the house more, so you're going to see them more. Or maybe there's like a, I can imagine kind of a little, a little additional electronics office back there where you have your screens and everything like that for your Zoom and go-to meetings. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I think that more than ever, home is important because we're all finding ourselves there much more than we were before. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Do you have any favorite materials that you're currently working with? Well, I always love cedar shingles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we're doing a lot lately that it's, I think is nice is we're whenever possible, we're not putting a finish on the wood. So, you know, I'm not saying exotic woods, you know, just woods like white oak or, you know, American black walnut, in some cases, maybe teak, but it's very expensive and it's not necessarily a very green wood to use. But if you put it on the ceiling and you don't put a finish on it, um, it's really nice because the wood, you really see the character of the wood. It's, it's, it doesn't have as, as high a finish 
Um, it, it sort of mellows with time in a really nice way. In fact, in our office, all of our bookshelves have no finish on them. They're walnut. There's no finish. And they've held up really well for some of them for 30 years. So I just love seeing that raw material. And I love the fact that we've eliminated one, one more varnish or finish that is not, not good for the environment. Um, so we're doing all that where you just see the raw wood and, um, Plus, it smells great. You know, it eventually over time, it's like a new car. The new car smell goes mm -hmm. away. Eventually, the smell of the oak goes away. But, you know, it still lingers and it still adds to the experience of being in the house. So we've been doing a lot of that lately. You have to install it carefully. The guys who install it have to wear gloves. so They'll leave their little fingerprints all over it. But when it goes in, it's really, really pretty. Sure. I can imagine. And I, I think that's one of those things, one of the... I wouldn't call it an intangible because it's a material. So obviously it's tangible, but one of the things that contributes to creating that sense of place that you've talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I agree. You know, that's right. It's there than intangible, but that room will feel completely different from a room where you have the same white Oak ceiling, but you've put a, you know, a, a, some kind of a finish like a lacquer or a, a shellac or something like that. You know, I just thinking, Another thing, we're doing a house out in the Hamptons that's all stone. I haven't done a stone building for a while. Uh, it's all stone from Israel, and it's this beautiful kind of warm gray, and it's all carved and textured. We went to, I was in uh, Jerusalem a couple months ago. We were working with the guys on how to create the texture, and it's a little bit the same as that raw wood, just revealing the, the sort of the grain and the character of the wood by not polishing it, by, but by actually tooling the surface. So you see the kind of structure of the stone and it, um, that's another, that's another material you mentioned. What are we working mm -hmm. with? That's been a really exciting process. That's so great. I love those materials that feel a little bit more organic. I think they have so much character. Yeah. And then when you think about indigenous architecture, I guess when you think about what we were talking about earlier about the way a house feels, you know, like that, that Normandy farmhouse I lived in, that was just raw, raw oak timber. Or you're, if you're in a house in New Mexico, it's just the white plaster walls with a tile or brick floor. You know, you just, there's, there, in a lot of ways, there's very little paint. You're just looking at the the actual material. I love seeing the, the materiality of something more necessary than a coach you put, of something you put on top of it. Right. Well, speaking of materials, you published a book, The New Shingled House in 2017. And in it, you say, in its understated way, it's the best of everything. A shingle style house can suggest the beach, the countryside, the mountains, or even the city. Can you tell us a little bit more about this philosophy and what the experience of writing this particular book taught you? Um. I guess what we meant by that first sentence was, this isn't true of everybody, but it may be true of a lot of people who want to build a house. You know, the shingle style is it, it, specifically is something that exists. It started in the East Coast, but it went across the entire country. There are shingle style houses in San Francisco and Wisconsin and stuff. And so almost everybody who's interested in architecture has some experience with the shingle style house, whether you've even been in one or not. If you know, there's always that kind of funny house in the neighborhood you grew up in. that was a shingle style house, or maybe you spent time in a lake house that was shingled. So I think it's a style that's, that is, that has gone across the country and many people experienced and many people have, you know, I hope good memories of it. So it, it talks to many, many people in, in different parts of the country. The thing about doing a book is that it 
it really forces you to stop for a moment and think about what you're doing and organize your thoughts. Um, it's a great tool to, um, to kind of push your firm forward. And I remember the first book we did, um, we worked with a, a book, um, you know, a woman who produces books for architects and interior designers. And she came and she talked and she took a bunch of photographs and she came back a couple of weeks later and she kind of presented our work to herself almost like we had never seen it before. And it felt like we had never seen it before. She happened to, she did a chapter on staircases. She put all our staircases together and then she put all our ceilings together. It was an amazing mirror on yourself and you see yourself in a completely different way. So it was a huge learning experience and actually kind of guided, you know, sort of shifted the, the focus of what we were doing because we were able to sort of objectify ourselves. So Book writing and putting it together, even if it, or even writing an article is a really or giving a talk is an amazing way to, to take a pause and think about what you're doing beyond, you know, getting away from the day to day business of designing something and meeting a deadline or a budget. It's really a great way to, to take a pause and, and think almost from the outside about what you're doing and looking at yourself sort of in a critical but helpful way. Right. It can be really eye opening. It's a really amazing exercise and sometimes scary exercise in self-reflection. And I think writing a book really has a sort of implied sense of um, vulnerability because you're really putting together all of your work in one place for people to see. And there's a lot of self-reflection that comes with that. And again, just, you know, putting it out there in, in one package can be a little bit scary, but it's also such a wonderful experience to be able to share that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, you know, at some point, you know, you have too many photographs, let's say, which ones do you cut out? It really forces you to kind of pare things down to what's really important to you. Mm-hmm. Well, and being an, a good editor, I think is so important in the business of design, whether you're an architect or a designer or working in some other facet of this industry because there's so many things from which one can derive inspiration, so many lanes that one can choose. So you really have to be fierce, fierce as an editor and stick with, you know, what the ethos needs to be for that particular home. Yeah. Taking things out. Who was it who said something about, you know, getting dressed, you get, get yourself dressed and you take off one piece of jewelry, whatever it is. It's true with, it's true with architecture we're going through an exercise right now in a house where the owner, we're, you know, we're just through schematics or we're kind of getting ready to go. And they said, look, can you cut basically um, 15% of the square footage out? And it's like, oh, we finally got here. Now we're shrinking it. But every time we do that, every time we shrink a house, it gets better because you do edit out the stuff that's extraneous or expensive or, it, it just becomes a better building. Um, editing is and it, it just like a deadline limits like that really foster creativity and sort of a consolidation and kind of a boiling down of your idea. Um, it's really important. Right. Where do you turn for inspiration? Um, our library, you know, history, mm-hmm. uh, architectural and design history. We have about a little over 4,000 books on architecture and design and, um, one of the things with the COVID virus is I've been told stop buying books because we're trying to save money right now. And it's, it's a huge frustration to me. So my, my um, what's it called? Shopping cart at, at Amazon is very full, but I can't push the buy button. But we, you know, it's really, it's two things. It's, it's looking at those books it's, and looking online. I'm, I've been reading about um, this guy, James Gordon Bennett, who was a, 
um, and a magazine editor, a newspaper editor in New York about the buildings he built with McKim Eden White. So constant looking at architectural history and learning things. And then, uh, you know, so experiencing it through books, but ex experiencing it firsthand. Last October, I spent a week with a group of architects and friends in a house um, near London designed by Edwin Lutyens. And, you know, being in that house for a week and looking at the details and looking at how Lutyens thought of every surface and every detail. And, you know, that kind of thing I find hugely inspiring. I came back from that trip really energized. So it really is the past. I mean, the inspiration comes from looking at things that have been done before and then imagining what you can do going forward. How can we transform this? Right. And not it's not about copying or creating something that's identical to the inspiration, but finding a way to translate that into something fresh and modern that you are now doing, you know, taking that thread and moving it forward. That, totally. I think I think it behooves all of us in the design world not to simply copy something. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who do beautiful, really historical work, and I'm, I don't mean to belittle that at all. But you know, even in doing that, they're creating something new. I personally would um, be unhappy with myself if I didn't feel like I was trying to do something new, even at somewhat the risk of failure. You know, I keep saying to people in the office, if we're not scared, we're not doing enough. If this is making us nervous, we're probably on to something. So I think it is more than just copying or just recreating. And, and it's exciting to see how you take these old ideas and make them into something hopefully that no one has seen before. Right, exactly. Is there a style of architecture that you are not particularly fond of? Um, I'm not a big lover of mid-century modern. Mm -hmm. I know it's the thing. And every now and then kind of a cool, wacky chair from... I don't know what is interesting, but I have tried since this, maybe it's fading out now, but I've tried since the, the term mid-century modern even came into being to love it. It just reminds me of when I was a kid and looking through, I, we, my parents bought a wearing blender when I was a little kid. And I remember looking through the, the, what's the instruction book and all the kind of, you know, the weird clock on the wall and the funny uh, bean shaped table and the, wacky i just don't i don't love it i love some of the lessons of it i love the openness and the light and stuff like that but mid-century modern just sort of leaves me cold mm -hmm. i don't want to you know i just danish well, it, modern, danish yeah. modern stuff i just am not into it except in a very sparing way maybe it's like a little bit of a spice in a soup but it's not the vegetable in the soup I like that. Well, and that's perfectly okay because taste is completely subjective, but it seems like, in my opinion, what, from what I'm seeing, I think mid-century modern is, we're sort of ending, coming to the end of that cycle. It's been so huge for the last maybe 10 years or so. And I really think that a lot of that was born of Mad Men, the TV show being such a huge hit. I feel like that sort of then permeated down into the cultural psyche and into design um, and people were wanting to live in a more spare way. And now maybe perhaps because of things that are going on in the world that are beyond our control, people are seeking more comfort. And it seems like there's almost been this cyclical return back to classicism. And in, in terms of interiors, people want things that feel a little bit cozier and um, aren't quite as sparse. No, I agree. I think, yep, yeah, I think so. Um... 
I think even mid-century modern may have the interest that may have spurred, you know, maybe been what brought about Mad Men. You know, it's funny, as much as I don't like mid-century modern, I love looking at that show because it's just, it's so incredible that it is incredible the design. I mean, it's very specific. It's very strong. Mm -hmm. um, I just wouldn't want to live in it or necessarily design it. Um, right. If you weren't an architect, what do you think you would be doing? I would love to be, well, I'd love, you know, this is the, I'd love to be a rock and roll star. I, you know, I love music. I, a couple of years ago, I went, I was at a show on Broadway and um, this always happens to me because probably because I'm six foot six, I always get pulled up on stage wherever I am. And I got dragged up on stage in front of, I don't know how many people in this big theater on Broadway. And I had to do something. It was a competition with someone else. And we were winning the competition. And every time we did one specific thing, I would go to the front of the stage and I'd raise my fist and go, yes. And the audience would erupt with this, yes. And I thought, oh my God, this is incredible. So I can only imagine what it's like to be, you know, Mick Jagger or, you know, somebody in Kiss, one of these groups. It's like, oh my God, I think I'm dating myself with those groups. Um, it's an amazing feeling, but I think re more realistically, I would love to just learn how to really paint well. And I, um, I've been doing uh, doing more and more watercoloring lately, and it's hugely rewarding and uh, related to architecture, but different enough. And you know, unlike architecture, where I, I draw, a, I may draw the, you know, the oak beam ceiling, but I don't actually touch. I rarely touch the materials materials other than the samples and stuff like that. But with painting. You're actually you're working with the materials and brushes and water, and I, I love doing that. I think I would be a painter. That's the short answer to your question. I would be a painter. I would. Be, I love that. I'd be. I would be a John Singer Sargent. Well, that's very specific, and what a talent! Oh my god! <laughs> but you, yeah. I mean, you could be. You could be a rock star who paints. Yeah, I. I think you and I need to talk more after this. After this podcast, because you, you have great ideas. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, anytime. Anytime. Is there anything people might be surprised to learn about you? Um, I have. Um, I love cars. You know, I'm. I think you know. Before I became an architect, I wanted to design cars. And um, when I was in high school, I actually spent a lot of time, you know, reading about car design. I des from the time I was a kid. Besides drawing houses, I would design cars. And it's funny. I designed a number of cars that eventually became real cars. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that Ford did or Chevrolet or Rolls Royce did it, but I designed cars that eventually I designed a minivan way before it became a minivan. I, so I guess it's like monkeys typing uh, Hamlet. You design enough cars and sooner or later, one of them is actually going to happen. I would, you know, maybe that's the other answer to being a painter. I would design cars. I, I didn't end up doing it was because I realized there are, so few real car designers who actually design a car. I suddenly looked forward to my future. I think I was 16 and thought if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll get to GM and I'll design, you know, the bezel around a headlight or maybe part of a grill or something to be some of these really great car designers. There are so few um, who really, um, who really make it, whose names you, you know, Chris Bangle, there's certain people design cars you'd recognize. I would, you know, I, car love is, is one of my secret, um, uh, what's it called? Private um, pleasures. 
My husband's a big car guy, so I feel like I've learned a lot by osmosis. Do you have a favorite car? If you could, if you could buy any car, vintage or current, <laughs> what would it be? I, this is how I go to sleep at night, thinking of what car I'd like to have. And I, and I usually go, well, I'll, I'll pick the top 10. Then I go, well, I'll pick the top American 10 cars from the 60s, and then the top American 10 cars from the 70s. It's a really hard question. Right now, I probably, it would either be a muscle car from Detroit, like a 1967 GTO convertible Pontiac, or it would be a 1960 Ferrari California um, like, mm. like in, um, uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. You remember that red car? Yep. Beautiful. Is, Mine would I, be a I, 55 I Porsche three. A what? I can't, I'm six, six. I love these cars. And I can't fit in them. Yeah. I can't, I, I rented a Corvette last summer because it was the new Corvette or something. I thought I'll rent this thing. I couldn't fit. And I drove it around for, for two days in Florida and I was miserable. Um, so what were you, what, you started to say something. What was it? Oh, well, I was going to say you're obviously classic American through and through because you love indigenous American architecture and Amer good old American cars. Um, I, had, I was saying my, I had, my dream car would be a 55 Porsche 356 Speedster. I just love yeah. the lines so of that car. Here's the thing about that car. I know this is not a car, uh, car podcast. That is one car I don't like. I really I just don't like those bathtub Porsches. I have a friend who has a number of them and he and I sort of argue about it all the time. And the client, a client of mine has a couple, I can't fit in them for one. Mm. People love them. You're, you are in a very big crowd of people who loves them. I, they just look kind of fat and not very fast. And <laughs> I just, I don't like them. I, I'll tell you the, just to add to the things people don't know about me. When I was in high school, I had a muscle car. I had a 1968 charger RT with a 440 Magnum. You know, it was it was a hot rod. My I, my father let me buy when my mother was out of town and she came home and I heard them fighting in the kitchen that night after I went to bed. You let him buy a hot rod. He's going to kill himself. And I, I drove it like a baby carriage. I was terrified of it, but I loved the sound of it and how fast it was. And so that that, that those are my Albuquerque cruising central days of having that that um, that hot rod. Very cool. So we're recording this in the midst of the um, coronavirus pandemic. We're all staying at home. So what has this experience taught you? Have you found a silver lining? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I was really worried when it, a lot of sort of interesting things. I was worried when it started that the office would be hugely inefficient. I was sort of hoping we'd be even 70% efficient. I found that we are getting the work done and people are working harder than ever. And, you know, I've learned that our office is really cohesive and we were set up for it. It's, and I'm really proud of the people in my office. And I, so that's been fantastic. Um, I found that I, you know, I travel all the time. And I think a lot of people talk about this, how this is the first time I haven't had a, a plane reservation in 40 years. And, you know, it's kind of a nice forced rest. And it's nice not commuting as much. And it's nice just being at home and being able to, you know, I'm getting fat because I, you know, <laughs> I, I go on a Zoom and then I go get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But there is something nice about not running all the time. Um, I do miss seeing the sites. I miss seeing my clients in person. I miss seeing the, my staff in person. But there is something nice about a breather. Manhattan, as you've probably heard, is very quiet. Uh, we live on a major avenue, and 
you know, except for maybe some of the cars you've heard go by on this on this broadcast, there's practically no cars. And you can I ride city bike around and I don't have to worry as much about get, getting run over by a you know a garbage truck. I, I really am loving the the kind of quiet. Um and like everybody, I'm rethinking about the amount of office space we may need or how we can leverage this in technology and stuff. So I think there have been a lot of nice things. Um, not to say that I can't wait to get back to normal to the old normal, but I think I think the old normal is changed. I think I can imagine working one or maybe two days a week out of the house. Never would do that before. Right. So it's kind of opened up lots of options that are nice. Yeah. I think we'll all move forward in a different way. I think there's certainly lessons that we're going to take away from this time. And as you said, you know, just being able to slow one's pace down a bit, even if temporarily, is such an eye opener. And you have to almost wonder, do I want to go back to what my frenetic pace was six months ago? Or do I, is it better to cut back in some way and be able to have more time to think creatively and to recharge. You know, one of the things that's happened is along those lines, I've started, I've started watercoloring and um, I have a little watercolor group. We get together on Sundays, we give each other assignments, we critique our work. You know, I wasn't watercoloring before this. Um, And part of that commute time I've devoted now to painting. So, um, there are certain things. I, I hope there are lessons that stick. I worry that as soon as these uh, re- these um, things are lifted, these whatever they're called, isolation things are lifted, that Manhattan's going to become a you know a giant traffic jam again. I pray that everybody is seeing how much nicer it is, quiet like this or quieter. I hope it sticks, and how much air you know that you can hear birds and how clean the air is. I pray that people, that some of these lessons stay and that, you know, one of the things about not commuting as much is that the traffic is down and pollution is down. You know, cars are being driven less. So there's, there's many good things. I hope they stick. Sure. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And I agree with you. I hope that a lot of those things stick around. Well, as we wrap up, I'll ask you one last question. If you could go back in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give your younger self? Um, yes. The, here, Yes. I would. I wish I had done a book earlier in my career, and um, you know, I never felt ready. And I talk to people about. I, I say to people, you know, if I if I could change one thing in my career, it'd be. I wish I'd done a book five or six, seven years sooner than I did. And you, you know, I didn't feel ready. People don't feel ready. But the truth is, I think people are more ready than they realize. Most people have a decent body of work. Everybody has some story to tell. And as, as we talked about before, it is such a helpful thing to do, you know, even if it doesn't get published, but it's certainly if it does get published, it is, you learn so much about the way you think and everything. I, I wish I'd done a book sooner. And that's my advice to people is do a book sooner. Before you think you're ready, do a book. That's great advice. And I like your reasoning behind that. I think that that exercise in self-reflection and analysis analysis of one's own work and point of view is really important in order to grow. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we're well, working Tom? on book three now. So um, I'm trying to oh, learn. Book three. Wow. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I can't wait to, to see it once it comes okay. out. Me too. <laughs>
Well, Tom, it's been so great chatting with you today. I feel like I, I learned so much about you and it's been so interesting to hear your perspective on things and um, to connect on so many different different levels of design. So thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was, I, I enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Well, be well and we will okay. talk soon. That was architect Tom Kligerman. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or be sure to subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. I will also be sharing news of our latest episodes on my personal Instagram at Paloma Contreras Design, so be sure to follow along so that you know when the latest episodes are out. If you're enjoying the style files, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and it will make a big difference for us as we grow the style files. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.